Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On April 3rd, the Walt Disney Company will be hosting its annual meeting of shareholders, and we need you all to vote for your board. It's important you vote only for Disney's 12 nominees using the white proxy card. Do not vote for the Tri-End Group or Blackwell's nominees. Learn more at VoteDisney.com. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. It is Thursday, February 1st. The more you know about the process of how movies get greenlit and produced, the more remarkable it is that any of them actually get made, let alone become good or popular. Just navigating the personalities and shifting agendas at movie studios and throughout Hollywood is a pretty unique talent, maybe even as important long-term as actual filmmaking talent. Today's show is about that skill, and our guest has been both an expert filmmaker and industry navigator for almost 50 years. And now he's done something even more radical. He's telling his story publicly. Ed Zwick began his career as a TV writer. He co-created 30-something, My So-Called Life in the 80s with his longtime partner, Marshall Herskovitz. Then he went on to become a hugely successful studio filmmaker in an era when the studios were actually making high-end dramas with big movie stars. He directed About Last Night with the Brad Pack, Glory and Courage Under Fire with Denzel, Legends of the Fall with Brad Pitt, Blood Diamond with Leo, The Last Samurai and the Jack Reacher sequel with Tom Cruise, many more. In the process, he picked up some pretty wild stories, as well as a ton of wisdom about surviving and thriving in the industry. And thankfully, he's now written the book, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, My 40-something Years in Hollywood. It's out February 13th, and in it, Ed shares some pretty revealing anecdotes. At the time, Julia Roberts abruptly bailed on Shakespeare in Love. She was originally cast in the Gwyneth role after she had a bad table read. Zwick got in a fight on Glory, not with Matthew Broderick, but with his mother had many ideas for the script. He played some pretty effective mind tricks on executives that tried to cut his budgets or intervene on set. He writes candidly about how to manage studios, how they weaponize the results of test screenings to serve their own purposes, and how the most dangerous thing to do on set is to try to handle a movie star. After 50 years of getting their notes, he writes in the book, the sum creative contribution from all but a few truly gifted executives might be reduced to four words, faster, Dumber, more likable. Great stuff there. So today it's Edswick, his new book, and the art of studio and movie star politics. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Edward Zwick, director, producer, writer of film and television for 40 plus years. Now he has a new book which I read over the holidays and is fantastic. It's called Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, my 40-something years in Hollywood. Welcome, Ed. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's get into this. I want to talk a little bit today about the politics of studios and movie stars, because this narrative throughout your book is you are a guy 
who got tons of movies made of the kind of movies that studios don't automatically want to make. They are star driven largely. They are dramas. They are full freight, as they say, more expensive dramas than studios typically like to make, even back in the day when they were making more of those. Yet one after another, you succeeded in getting these movies made and for many of them, making money and getting awards attention. So I want to talk about that. And you write candidly in the book about this. You call getting a movie made a, quote, war of attrition. (laughs) And you say movies aren't born. They fight their way to life. That sounds a little cliche, but explain what you mean by that. Well, increasingly and certainly presently, the, the calculus for making a movie has more to do with IP than it does with anything else. Yeah, but you have managed to subvert that, or at least you have for a long time. Yes, yes. And, and, and by the way, the world was different, but there are still those movies that find their way through, but they tend to be the exception. The reason I think is that even in those days, they called those kind of movies that they were um, execution pieces, which is a phrase to, to say that there is no guarantee. And the whole logic <laughs> behind the studio sort of math is some illusion that you are protecting your your downside, that there are certain guarantors that can be made for movie success, which you know and I know is not true. Mm. Well, you could say that the IP is the key to reducing your risk, but I hear what you're saying. In terms of quality, certainly not. But particularly when something is is a one-off, which is to say it has no potential of a sequel, it's not part of a series of things. And so therefore, it has to succeed on its own intrinsic merits. And that always was a very difficult needle to thread. And I was very lucky early on. I was mentored by by Sidney Pollack, really, more than anybody. And he used to talk about casting um, movie stars as actors. And he understood, I think, that that in fact, movie stars all began at the same place. They, they were actors. They, they came to this for all sorts of personal reasons, but, but often artistic reasons. And if you could appeal to that aspect of a movie star's art, you could enlist them in an enterprise that wasn't the obvious one. You know, Legends of the Fall is something that I had first read when I was First in Hollywood, it took me seven years to get the book. It took me five years to get a studio interested. It was one of those processes that we always hear about. But I had met Brad early on because he had done a small part in 30-something. And then I'd met him in the room after he had done um, Film and Louise. And he clearly was, was this significant force to be reckoned with. And yet his participation wasn't enough to convince the studio to make that movie about a guy who brings ruin upon everything around him and is killed by a bear. So how do you, how do you, how do you sell that movie? And initially Robert Duvall was interested and that seemed to get the studio somewhat and get their attention. Um, but then that then didn't do it. And, and then he took another movie and, and it was really because of Tony Hopkins and his willingness to do the movie that it gave Mike Metavoy the cojones to, to go ahead and, and make that movie. Mike Benavoy, who was running TriStar at the time. And then, you know, obviously you then write about how that relationship was challenged during the shooting of that movie. Uh, Metavoy, as according to your book, 
they asked that 10 pages of the script be killed during the shoot to reduce costs. So you did a like double jujitsu move and you (laughs) pretended to not want to come out of your trailer and you had your producing partner call Mike early in the morning and say, I don't think Ed's coming out of his trailer. And he basically caved to you and said, fine, fine, fine. Do what what you want. Am I relating that accurately? Yeah, I think it, it, it's a it's a it's a, a sim- simplified version, but yes, yeah, I think that's 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 really true. I think that that um, there is sometimes some theater involved in these things, but it's I often feel that that my job has been in that case and in many others is saving the studio from themselves. <laughs> you know, they it's often been been the case that that they have very earnest and very true instincts about a piece of material. They often respond just as passionately as you do. But what happens as the money becomes real and as the risk becomes greater, their jobs are on the line. They get nervous. Every, I mean, they it's, get, it's, they it's get natural. really nervous and they start to second guess. And they're yeah. often second guessing themselves. And, and part of what I, I've, I've ended up having to do at times is remind them of that wellspring of passion that drove them not just to do this job, but to attach to this particular piece of material. And it's this process by which, as I'm deconstructing a piece, it isn't until it can be put back together and they can start to see the movie take shape that that anxiety can be reduced. Well, but you, you also haven't been afraid to really draw lines in the sand. I mean, you threatened to quit Last Samurai. You and Marshall threatened to quit. The exec then came to the set and was super nice to you. and then quietly tried to sabotage you behind your back. Encourage under fire. Another junior exec came to the set, demanded that you cut $100,000. You told him to walk away, uh, which he did, although you note that he has since never hired you, even though he's in a very powerful position these days. You know, this happens a lot, and it's not just with the execs. I mean, you write extensively about your relationship with the stars in your movie. And one thing that keeps coming up, which is pretty funny to me, is how many times major stars try to quit your movies after the table read. Why <laughs> Brad Brad Pitt wanted to quit Legends of the Fall, called had his agents call after the table read. Dustin Hoffman ghosted you on a project and you showed up for a meeting and his lawyer Bert Fields was waiting instead of Dustin. I mean, the Matthew Broderick story where he signs on to Glory and then has a complete meltdown, pulls diva behavior, has his mother get involved and demands changes to the script that incorporate Uncle Tom's Cabin and Emerson. She called your writing limp as a penis. I mean, these are (laughs) this pretty uh, ridiculous behavior. How do you approach handling movie stars? Those are the more flagrant examples. And they're obviously the ones that you're drawn to trying to call attention to. And they're all true. But I would have to also say that they are the minority. The best actors and the best experiences I've had have often been with some of the biggest or most talented among them. But I I think that fear is not to be underestimated as a part of the process. I think I know that every movie that I've started, I've had to deal with extraordinary anxiety about what I'm putting myself on the line. And you have to understand for an actor, the metaphor is that they're on a tether out there doing a spacewalk with zero gravity 
and I'm inside the capsule drinking a cup of coffee, you know, and I'm protected by this metal from the radiation and all. And the sense of vulnerability that they are confronting by deciding to do a movie and putting their face out there and with that fear that that could be damaging or that it, that that perch, whatever perch they have could be lost is very real. I think you can't really minimize the sense of real mortal terror that exists to front a movie, particularly to front a movie. You know, you have to remember that these actors have worked their way into a, a certain eminence, but that wasn't the job that they were trained for. And there's often a feeling that when you're starring in a movie, that somehow you have to take on more responsibility, more responsibility than you might have otherwise ever had. Yeah, your Julia Roberts anecdote is pretty amazing. I mean, she signed on for Shakespeare in Love and she got it in her. She not only signed on, you guys were in rehearsals. You were trying to cast Shakespeare opposite her and she really wanted Daniel Day-Lewis. She was a young, very hot actor coming off of Pretty Woman. And ultimately, she just up and took off from London because she didn't get the co-star she wanted and she got nervous. But she was 24 years old. I mean, you, you know, I don't, I don't know if you remember who you were when you were 24. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of a jackass. I probably would have done the same. Well, that's my point. This is a business that is, it's ungoverned. There's no, you know, strict oversight. Well, there are contracts and she signed. There are contracts, and, but, but there are often contracts that aren't enforced. That's true. And there's a sense of entitlement and you've got handlers around you and you've got Mike Ovitz willing to undo anything that you want. And there is mm -hmm. a, that, that is the, the problem in a lot of these situations. I mean, you see it in the Matthew Broderick anecdote where, I mean, this guy was the hottest star after Ferris Bueller and he wanted to leverage that. He wanted a private plane for his mother to fly down to Savannah. He wanted, you know, all the accoutrements and Julie Roberts that you get a sense from your storytelling that, this was someone who was in the throes of stardom. She had recently walked away from an engagement and was going off to London to make this movie and got there and decided that maybe something else would be more fun. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. Um, I got to say that I understand why it's your impetus to focus on these more dishy, more sort of colorful moments. Mm -hmm. And there is you know, no little bit of tussle and, 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 you know, things that Dude, happen. Brad Pitt threw a chair at you. That's, that's pretty interesting. No, I think <laughs> I might throw the chair at him first. You know, oh, I, you did. Oh, okay. All right. I want to be clear about that. But, but, you know, oh God, it's funny. I think when you reduce it to that, it makes it sound like we're all irresponsible children. No, 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 no. It's your mate. You're creative people and trying to make something great. Yeah, that's the point. The point is the passion. Mm -hmm. The point is the intensity. These are all very sensitive, emotional, volatile people. And I include myself in that category. And you know, you read about uh George Clooney and David O. Russell in Three Kings, and there are so many incidences I like threw this. a punch at him. Well, I just think that that this is not a how to say this, there's no uh book of instructions as to how to do this. And, and a movie is a thing that is this organic thing that keeps changing and that challenges you. And you are under stress of lack of sleep and bad weather and bad food and away from your family and your career is on the line. 
they're pressured circumstances and, and people don't always respond well. Well, and for the record, you write that you did reconcile with Brad Pitt over smoking a joint before you recorded the director's commentary for that. We program. reconciled, but we reconciled long. We reconciled every day. Okay. All right. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight Saving Time is back. Wait, wasn't that a movie from 2009? Okay. Anyway, I do love more hours of daylight. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash town. Tap the banner to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. You do write, though, that it's an interesting line. You say that the most disastrous thing you can do as a filmmaker is to try to handle a movie star. What does that mean? It means that, that these people, as a as a rule, have such built-in antennae, such a um awareness of being bullshitted because they have been surrounded now by handlers and fluffers and people who want something from them and want to only say yes. And in fact, I believe that deep down they actually want to be told the truth because acting You believe that? Oh, I do. I huh. do because well, if you look at the performances. And you point out the performances that I've had in those movies. Those performances are generally only reached by their willingness to search for authenticity and truth in those characterizations and in that work. And you don't get that for free. You get that by beginning at a place of real deep investment and confrontation with yourself and sometimes confrontation with someone else who pushes you or with your co-stars. And so that's another part of that process that is unseen. Yeah, you talk in the book about challenging Tom Cruise on Last Samurai and really trying to get more emotion out of him in a scene that required it. And you went to his family. You, you said, tell me about your son after his kid had just left the set and he wasn't going to see him for a long time. And that was the point. That was the pressure point with him that got him to be more emotional. And it came through in the performance and he acknowledged it afterward. And he wanted it. You know, you have to understand that this is not um, like some sort of abuse. This is a process mm -hmm. that is a gift, I think, to, to an actor at times is to be willing to go into some areas that are sometimes difficult and sometimes painful. And, and part of the process of directing is actually getting to know one another to a degree that those areas become available. You know, and by the way, 
Not every actor wants that. Some actors are absolutely self-contained and are able to do that themselves. And God bless them because that's less for me to think about with everything else that's going on. And the, the funny thing often is that you're often dealing with two or three actors, all of whom have different processes. In, a, in other words, one might want to have a very engaged set of deep dialogues about a scene and how it works and what we're going for, while someone else wants to say, just say the words and not trip over the furniture because I know what I'm doing and I can do that myself. And part of the job is actually trying to reconcile all those things together to make it have a single voice. So that's the star side of it. Uh, I want to read a, a passage from the book that talks about dealing with studios and getting to a yes. And here's how you say the process goes. When the creative executive says, we're going to make this movie, it means she'll try to get the VP to read it. When the VP says he'll make it, it means he's read positive coverage. When the EVP says it, it means she'll take credit for finding it if the president of production likes it. When the president of production says it, it means he needs to tell the CEO which actor is starring in it. And at last, when the CEO says, we're going to make this movie, it means it'll get made if he still has his job in six months. <laughs> it's a pretty cynical take on the process of getting movie made. Well, it's, it's deliberately exaggerated mm -hmm. and true. I mean, how has that process changed in your estimation over the past 10 years or so? Because arguably, with the rise of streaming, the, there are more of these movies getting made than you might think. I mean, people talk about how the studios don't want to make these movies, but Netflix or Amazon, they're making plenty of these movies. There's been a very particular effect, I think, that's a legacy of Silicon Valley, which is the team. I think right. that decisions are made uh, with some kind of attempt for consensus. I think it's true in the room when you're pitching. I think it's true about casting. I think it's true about sales and everything else. I think they're often looking for this pre-socialized acceptance of a thing. And I get that because that's a retail thought. It's a thought of how you market a thing before the fact. But my experience is that the way that the kind of movies that I've made ended up were with the single passionate agency of a person taking that movie on saying, I believe in it. And that redounds all the way back to the owner managers of, you know, how movies used to be made in the 30s and 40s. Sure. And I can tell you that, that um, you know, when Laura Ziskin was alive and she was starting this new studio and she was willing to make a producer movie and executive about, about willing to make a movie about friendly fire in the Gulf War while she was working for Rupert Murdoch. That was a ballsy move. But she yeah. said, we're going to do this. Right. Alan Horn at Warner's took on Alan the Diamond Horn, Lobby. In terms of Last Samurai, I mean, I had this happen to me again and again. Yeah. Um, Jeff Sagansky deciding at a new studio to make a movie about an African-American regiment in the Civil War. Glory. Is a brave, you know, move. And he stands, he stood, he stood behind it. And, you know, I make fun of these guys at times, but without some of them, none of these things would have happened. And I could iterate others as well. Um, I mean, look, uh, Tom Rothman, uh, when we were doing uh, The Siege, he ended up getting bomb threats in his office because we were, you know, introducing um, Arab Americans and, and talking about terrorism. And this has happened to me again and again. I mean, I, I don't imagine you get many Tiffany gifts after the Blood Diamond 
brouhaha. <laughs> but Alan Horn stood up to the De Beers Corporation that put up millions of dollars in a disinformation campaign and tried to prevail upon him to add a disclaimer on the beginning of the movie. And he refused. He backed the movie. So, yes, I can laugh about the process and make fun of the process. But at the end of the day, that is somewhat of the difference that I sense. I don't think that the Jeff Bezos is reading the scripts and making decisions about what movies are being made. No, but there are people at the, at the streamers who have those jobs. What you're saying is that they are less likely to have a take and to believe in a particular filmmaker or project to the extent that they're willing to put themselves out there. That's right. And I think they're less seminal in the evolution of them. Yeah. I think, you know, the development process is a, a, a very delicate one, really. And the inevitable result of it is often to take the starch out of a thing, to, to maybe leach out what is idiosyncratic or unique about it for the sake of making it more acceptable. And maybe by the time it gets, you know, it, it, if they were drugs, as the time they're stepped on again and again and again, by the time it reaches um, the marketplace, it's 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 of a reduced potency. And I think that's something that I sensed in in the, the process. What would you say as a piece of advice to young filmmakers or even young executives starting out in the business today? It's just such a, you know, it's such a weird time. And you, I mean, movie after movie, you succeeded in getting these things made that were had messages and were about something and had big stars and actually made money a lot of the time. What would, you, what would your piece of advice be today? What I used to say to myself is that if it was something that could engage me for two years, that maybe it would be something that could engage people for two hours. Mm -hmm. your, your belief in the thing had to be really strong. And the fact that I think, at least for me, it had to be about something. And when I say about something, I don't necessarily mean politically, you know, um, or worthy, but there had to be in it something that either spoke to your heart personally or that you thought addressed something culturally or socially, that it was that it had size uh, and then size of ideas. That's one thing mm -hmm. that I think is missing. But I also think that you have seen really gifted people start to emerge now because of the availability of the technology. The idea that, you know, that you can make something look beautiful with very little money and you can cut it on your computer and you can have a little pro tools to make the sound better. And, you know, I think that things happen in, in, in two different directions. And, and my advice would be to shoot film. I mean, I know that the only way I was able to make glory after making about last night is because I had shot 40 hours of television in between that time when we were doing 30 something. And, you know, the thing about a director these days too, is sometimes you get to make a Sundance movie. And the next thing that happens is somebody lays millions and millions of dollars on you and a big movie star, and you haven't necessarily shot that much film. Right. <laughs> and then suddenly there you are. And, and then you, and it's almost like a, you know, a, a, a rock and roll group. They've spent 10 years on the road making that one album and it's unbelievably good. And the label looks at it, say, that's a big hit. We need another album now in nine months. Right. And, 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 and so that's a hard part. So I know how these memoirs work. You probably agonized for a long time about what to include, what not to include, and you make choices. I want to know the thing that you almost included and didn't. 
I, I was actually thinking that the other day because certain things have occurred to me as I've started talking, but mm-hmm. not, they lack. They weren't for for fear of of upsetting people because I was determined from the beginning that I would just tell the truth as best I could. Well, you could have named a, a few more names. You were discreet in a couple ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I felt that in certain cases that things would be inappropriate to mention that they were embarrassing of a particular way. And I don't think that's what I've talked about in terms of people. I've talked about yeah. really how they behave professionally more than, than, than personally. All right. I appreciate the time. Good luck with the book. Edswick, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, it's a real movie coming out this weekend in theaters. Been a few weeks since that happened. Although I've heard it, it's barely a real movie because it seems like most scenes were shot with two actors in different rooms and a lot of green screens. Oh, stop, stop. It is Argyle, the Matthew Vaughn movie, which somehow cost $200 million, according to reports. Uh, I know they had a lot of COVID problems with this. It was greenlit in 2021 and the production was troubled, as they say. Apple bought this movie and is financing most of it. Matthew Vaughn tends to get outside financing for a lot of his movies, the Kingsman stuff. Um, I know he then he financed and then sold it to Fox. He's done other movies that way in the past, but this one's an Apple movie and they are releasing it through Universal theatrically. Maybe on this one, they should have kept it as an Apple original exclusive. Either way, I, I'm not sure how it, it would have done. I, look, I, I actually think Matthew Vaughn's movies are good. I, I'm a huge Kingsman fan. Kick-Ass is great, but this one never called out to me. I uh, My guess is that Dua Lipa is in the movie way less than we think, and it's uh, 87%. <laughs> How dare you? You're saying, they're o- you're saying they're saying they, they're overselling the pop star in the movie? It, this this has Lost City vibes to me, uh, okay. but the only difference is this movie's two hours and 20 minutes. Oh, what are we doing? God. I know. I know. Unbelievable. Um, so the tracking is about $20 million for the weekend. Uh, I'm going to take the under. I just don't see it. The Rotten Tomatoes is 34%. Rolling Stone <laughs> called it a disaster. People are really hating on this movie. I thought the trailer looked fun. The, you it, know, the, the trailer cat. does look fun. I agree. But but it almost it looks like a smokescreen trailer. It looks like a, a sh- it's like a shiny quarter. Like it, you can't stop looking at it because it's well edited and it's action packed and there's a lot of stars on screen. But it feels like when you actually look into it, I think the casting of this movie is just kind of weird. Yeah. And Universal's releasing this. So I'm always a little suspicious when the studio is releasing a movie they don't own. You know, Universal does this a lot where they take on movies from other financiers and they are just the distributor on it. I always wonder if they give it their full effort when they're promoting and distributing uh, and they don't own it. But, you know, they got a lot of movies on their plate and they got to make choices in different areas. Uh, Obviously, they would say they give their best effort to every movie. Um, Also, I know they had a bad experience with Bryce Dallas Howard on the last Jurassic World. They're probably not loving her, but uh, they are professionals. They are probably giving it their all. The Shawshank Redemption was two hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> you will not stop on this one. This seems like a plain movie, and I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, but like it's like a The oh, Lost yes, City. Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are. That's I okay. kind of am, but yes. The Lost City was an hour and 50, and, that, and that's it's, what it should It's be. an Apple movie. It, it should be on the service. Like They should have to make judgments on which movies deserve theaters, which movies don't. And like Amazon's dealing with this right now with the... A Roadhouse movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, which definitely looks like it should be a theatrical movie. Doug Lyman is going around telling anyone who will listen that it should be in theaters, but Amazon's keeping it on the service. And then we get movies like this in theaters that probably should just be on the service. Um, although it costs 
probably too much money to just keep it on the service. But all right, we'll see how it does. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Ed Zwick. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We'll see you one more time this week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.